And we're going to continue that series today called For His Glory and For Our Benefit. That's the name of the series we've been going through. And we're finding many things along the path that glorify God's name. And we're also finding many treasures along the way that benefit our soul. We thank God for both of those things, that we don't have to pick one or the other. We can glorify God at the same time we can be benefited. And so 1 John, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 today. Excuse me, that is not right. 11 to 15, I'm on rewind. It's called The Essential Ingredient today. It's the Essential Ingredient is the title of our lesson today. And we're going to talk about one really important factor of the Christian life, which won't surprise you, I'm guessing. Before we get there, though, sometimes I give you a, a little icebreaker to start the lesson. And well, today I'm going to ask you to help me with the icebreaker. Uh, this icebreaker I have, I'm going to give you several activities, okay? F familiar activities to all of you up here. And uh, some of these activities you do, some of them you don't do, but you'll still understand what we're doing. I want you to help me understand what is the most essential element to every one of these activities, all right? I'll give you the activity, and you respond with what you believe is the most essential element to these activities, okay? We'll start with this one, because this one's really easy. Hiking, all right? There's a lot of hikers in this church, a lot of hikers in the North Country. What would you say is the most essential element to hiking? Legs. It's not bad. It's hard to hike without, what else? Directions. That's right. You don't want to go the wrong way. What, who said moose? <laughs> Star for the day. Ken. I said moose collar. Because why are you going on a hike unless it's to see moose? There's no reason to hike the mountains. So bring the moose collar. Okay, you see where we're going here. How about this one? Downhill skiing. Who likes to downhill ski? All right, we got several. Wow. No, you don't. I just called my mother out. My mother... My mother does not downhill ski, but that would be funny to watch. What would be the most essential ingredient to downhill skiing? It's right in the word. Snow. Skis? I said a hill. Hard to downhill ski without a hill, right? That's right, a hill. What about this one? Shopping. Who likes to shop? Not many. Now, Mom, I do, you know, you don't like to shop. What's the most essential element to shopping? Money, a store, all good answers. Anything else? I said an exit strategy. Make sure you know how to get out of that store because you could be there a while otherwise. How about this one, gardening? Who likes to garden? What's the most essential element to gardening? Dirt? That's a good answer. I said a desire for a garden. I don't know why you would garden otherwise, unless you wanted a garden, right? That would be silly to do. Uh, how about this one? Sunbathing. Sunbathing. Sun. Sunscreen. Yeah, that's a, that's an important one. I said skin. In fact, if you don't have skin, I'm not a doctor, but don't go sunbathing. That's going to be a bad idea. Fishing. You're in this one, Christy. What's the most essential ingredient to fishing? Patience. A pole. You could fish without a pole, though. You see those people that stick their hands in and get the catfish? I said a relentless sister. My sister is a fishing phenom, and she loves to drag me along, so I wouldn't go fishing otherwise. What's that? I have never tried that. I never will. But thank you. you blow up the whole pond. How about this one? Golfing. Any golfers in the audience? What's the most essential element to golfing? Clubs. 
ball. I said a love for anger. Because you're going to be angry golfing. Patience, yeah, definitely. How about running? Anyone like to run? We got one. We have a runner back there. Lisa likes to run. What's the most essential element to running? Feet. Shoes, feet. I said a hatred for literally every other activity. I don't understand running. I, I'm sorry. I know. Is that offensive? Okay. These are jokes. I just don't understand running. I don't know why anyone would run to run. Running towards a moose? Yeah, I get it. Running from a moose? How about traveling? What's the most essential element to traveling? Patience. Absolutely. What's that? Planning. Mine goes along with that. I said a GPS that avoids Massachusetts. Jokes, people, jokes. We don't hate Massachusetts. Just comes up a lot. Swimming. Water. <laughs> Hard to swim without water. I said a swimsuit you hate. I don't know one person that likes their swimsuit. Everyone hates their swimsuit. So anyone not like their swimsuit? Anyone? Okay, wow. Everyone loves their swimsuit up here. That one was wrong. How about this one, pastoring? I have to give you this answer to this one. What's the most essential element to pastoring? The Bible. People. Hard to pastor without people. Patience. I, a good sense of humor? I said a thick skin. <laughs> thick skin to be a pastor. Parenting? A kid. I, you literally can't do it without a kid. <laughs> That's why you wouldn't parent. How about reading? A book. Something to read. I said insomnia. I actually like to read, but some people hate reading and they read for that reason. Bird watching. Anyone like to bird watch? Bird watch, yeah. What's the most, yes. What's the most essential ingredient to bird watching? Birds. Ah. <laughs> Hard to watch without eyes. Hard to watch birds without birds. I said, no friends. <laughs> Jokes. Jokes. And this leads into my last one, icebreakers. What's the most essential element to an icebreaker? A strange sense of humor, which I have and clearly you all have. Because you're laughing at these. Well, we're looking at something like that today. My last one for you today is, what is the most essential element to acting like a Christian? That's what we're going to look today. We're going to look at this, find this from the scripture. I've encouraged you along the way to read 1 John once a week. Hopefully you're finding that practice beneficial. I am. I'm finding that practice incredibly beneficial. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. In fact, with the Bible app on your phone and tablet, it can read to you. So if you, if you don't want to read the words, it can read to you. It's a really beneficial practice. I encourage you to do that once a week if you're able to. Let's read our passage today. It's 1 John 3, verses 11 to 15. Hear the word of God. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The Word of God. Now, sometimes you get easy passages to speak through. I would not say this is a 
tremendously easy passage, but it's a very important one. And we're going to learn an essential ingredient today. If you remember last week, we spoke about how to be on the winning team. We talked about righteousness and love, and we're going to continue talking about love today. And I've encouraged you along the way to remember the context. That's going to help us understand what John is saying today. So let's look at the verses we looked at last week. I know that's probably really hard to read. I can zoom in a little bit here, but that's still going to be tough. But I'll read it out loud. Verses 7 to 10 of 1 John 3. He said, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You can tell where John is taking us today. He's going to focus on that last sentence as we talk about the essential ingredient. Now we have a three-point outline again today. Our three, out, three outlines that we want to get to is number one, the ancient truth that John brings up. Number two, a striking contrast, which it is a striking contrast. Number three, the proof of life. That's where we're headed today. Let's look at this one. The ancient truth. John says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's nice when you can find what he means in the exact same verse. He says the message that you've heard from the beginning is that we should what? Love one another. That's the message John is talking about today. And he says, it's a message you've heard from the beginning, so it's very, very old. Does anyone like old? Anyone like old things? Anyone think old is better? I kind of do. I think older sometimes is better. I don't like a lot of those new things. I don't quickly move to new things. I mean, ask my wife. I, I like old things. I like to get used to things that I'm used to. Um, and all the things that are happening around us today make me a little nervous. Anyone else? Yeah. I don't know if I'm turning into an old fuddy-duddy, but... Uh, <laughs> The things that I'm seeing around our pop culture now are making me a little nervous because they're new. They're not tried and tested. They're new and it makes us all nervous because what are their capabilities? What are they going to bring to our culture and society? We don't know. But with old things, you don't have to worry about that too much. Now, let me give you a little advice as a pastor. When I reach for a commentary, I reach for someone old. And I do that on purpose. Not because there's nothing good that is new. There are several good resources out there today that are by new um, commentators. But... I reach for the old ones. Does anyone know who these three guys are? Some of these people you'll probably recognize. Does anyone, who's that on the left? That's, you guys have heard his name before. I've brought him up many times. What about in the middle? Who knows who that is? Long beard. This guy had trouble eating soup. That's going right in the soup. That is J.C. Ryle. I know you've heard of him because Pastor Mark liked him. And on the right, the guy with the perm. Who's that? Matthew Henry. Anyone heard of Matthew Henry? His commentary is online for free. These guys I trust. I use these guys a lot because these guys I know have been around a long time. They've been tried and tested, used by many, many pastors before myself. And it doesn't, again, mean you shouldn't grab for anything new. But there's something about old that seems trustworthy, right? If it's been around a long time, it seems like we can trust it a little easier. Well, John says the message that we have heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. And there's something safe about having something as old as 
from the beginning, from the genesis of everything that we know in this world, the message that John is speaking about today was there at the beginning. In fact, we can say it this way, the entire world was founded on this concept of love. If you're sitting here today, it's because someone has loved you. Someone very profound has loved you. The entire world was based upon this message that John is giving us today. So he's telling us it is a trustworthy message. We can trust this message that John is speaking to us today because it's ancient, it's old, it's tried, it's tested, and the entire world was founded upon this concept of love. In fact, you don't have to take my word for it. You can find it right in the scriptures. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible in the first five books, you'll see this love make its way out in many, many passages. This one is what the Jews called the Shema or the Shema. And they said this. It was basically a prayer that they would pray and probably still do. It says, Hear, O Israel. This comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. You shall love that one Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is the greatest commandment God ever gave man, to love him, to love God. Yes, to worship God. Yes, to speak about his word. But the bottom line for everything that we should do as Christians and people of God is simply to love our Lord. But we also find this kind of running along the same tracks. Every time we see love the Lord, we see another similar commandment. In Leviticus, when the, when the law is being handed out to the people of Israel, in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against, your against your, the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, I am the one giving you this commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's ancient. It's old. It's tried. It's tested. And it's the message John has for us today. Why not give us something new? John, we've heard this over and over. Ad nauseum. Love. We've heard love so many lessons on love. Why would John speak about this? Why not give us something that can really benefit us? Something we haven't learned yet. Why love? Love is like Christianity 101, right? We've passed that class already. Let's move on, John. Well, John's going to remind us today that there really is no moving on. There's only greater depths of love. Once you learn love, you learn greater depths of love. You keep diving into this beautiful doctrine and truth, and that's what we're doing today. In fact, I told you it founded the world, because in 1 John 3, a passage we looked at a little while ago, John reminds us that see what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. If you're a child of God, the reason is, is because someone loved you immensely. Someone loved you when you were unlovable, and myself included. And John says, now we are children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The love of God is the foundation for all of our lives. You can refuse to admit it. You can refuse to look at it. You can refuse to agree with it. But it does not change the truth that if you're alive today, if you're a child of God today, it's because of the love of God. And John wants to remind us of that today and take us even deeper. Now, for those who are hiking, this is the, or climbing a mountain, this is the ultimate goal in life, right? We've used this metaphor before to climb Mount Everest, right? Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in our world, 29,000 some feet. And this is a guy, I guess, who made it to the top of the summit. 
and he's taking a picture there. Hopefully he made it down safely. But why do people want to climb Mount Everest? Why? I mean, just think about it. We asked you this question at the beginning, what's the most essential element? Why would anyone want to climb a mountain that high? The tallest mountain. What's the answer? The challenge. I would say because it's the greatest. It's the highest. It's the best. There's no summit higher than it. Once you scale Mount Everest, you've scaled the mountain of mountains, the summit of all summits. Well, the question today that we need to ask is why love? He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Why? Why love? Love is the foundation for our world. Love is the foundation for our salvation. Love is the very reason Jesus left his throne in heaven to come to the earth and become a man so that he could die for our sins give us new life with God. The only reason Jesus did that is because of love. There's no other reason to come. Jesus suffered and died a really cruel, miserable, humiliating death. And the reason for it is love. He stayed on that cross. He died on that cross because he loves his people that much. And that's the message of the gospel. When we go share people the message of the gospel, we tell them, I have to remind you, I have to share with you how much love God has for you, that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for the sins of the people who were rebels and sinners. And if you've shared that message, you know what a joy it is to share about the love of God. And John, probably one of the greatest books about the love of God practically, is 1 John, because he continues to bring this up. He says in 1 John 4, we're not there yet, but he says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If you know God, then you clearly know love because it's impossible. It's impossible to say, I know God, I'm intimate with God, I have a relationship with God, God is my Father, that Jesus is my Savior, and to be coy about love or to be unfamiliar with love. That's an impossible, strat or an impossible equation. And John's going to break us of that today by saying, if you know God, you know love. If you know love, you know God because God is is love. And notice it doesn't say he's loving or he loves sometimes throughout his day. It says he is love. God is defined by the word love. You can tell how important it is, right? If God is defined by that word love, it's pretty important to our lives. If we want to worship God, we had better be very, very familiar with that word love. And I told you our entire salvation and eternal hope is based upon this concept of love. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church and he says, Blessed be the God and Father, that Lord that we love, that one Lord that we're seeking to serve and worship. Blessed be him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that's what you have? If you're a child of God, you don't have a fraction or half. You have every spiritual blessing that God has. It all belongs to you. And then he goes on to say this. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let's say that again. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Say it with me. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Do you think, consider how profound that is. Before he said, let there be light. He said, I want you. I want Todd. I want everyone in this room. I want them as my children. 
before he had constructed the world and put the world together, he said, I want them. That's an amazing truth to understand. He says that we should be holy and blameless before him. And there it is. In love. Love is the reason. Love is the foundation. Love is the cornerstone of God's blessings to us. He gave it all of us. He gave it to all of us through his great and mighty love. And he's setting the foundation here. That's what John is doing. Because he's going to take us deep today. And he wants us to know the foundation is love because God is love. Therefore, we need to be love as well. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous passages, if not the most famous passage about love, Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, if I speak in the tongues of men or of, or of angels, basically the languages of men, if I know all the languages of men, if I know even the languages of angels, but I don't have love, he says, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you think that sounds good? Junior high music class, anybody? Um, without love, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what school you've been to, how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter the biblical knowledge that you have. If you don't have love to God, it's a nuisance. It's annoying. It's nothing pleasing to his ears. If we don't have love, we have nothing to offer God. Because love is everything to God. 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And you can be sure, certain of your own salvation because you love one another. When you love one another, you are the most like Jesus. You're the most like God. When we see the needs of someone around us and we meet those needs... We are most like Jesus Christ because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what God did for us by sending his son to, the, to this earth. He saw our need. He met our need. And when we do the same, we are very much like God. And we have proof that we are of God in ancient truth. Let's look at the striking contrast that John brings up because it is a striking contrast. He goes on to say in verse 12, we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, is that an odd thing to hear for someone who is reminding you to love one another, to tell you in the same sentence, in the same vein, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. And if you're familiar with that story, you know exactly the story that he's talking about. Cain and Abel, the two sons born of Adam and Eve. And let's, fact, let's read that passage right now. In fact, I was able to find a real picture of Cain and Abel there. Uh, yep, yep, that's actual, legitimate picture of Cain and Abel. No, of course, that is, remember guys, remember flannel graph? Remember from when you were growing up? That's, I think that's like flannel graph right there. Cain looks really miserable. But let's read the tale of Cain and Abel, because this is going to make a mark for what John is telling us today. This comes from Genesis chapter 4, all the way to the beginning. It says, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. There he is first son of Adam and Eve, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, or a farmer of sorts, a gardener. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now notice the language here. Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He brings God something. It's not bad, it's not good, it's just an offering. 
Verse 4, it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Notice what Abel brought to the Lord. Do you notice the contrast? Cain brings God something. Abel brings God his best. That helps us understand how the tale goes the way that it goes because it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Of course he would. He gave him literally his best thing that he had. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why? Because you don't give God your scraps. You don't give God average. You don't give God ho-hum. God is God. He's the almighty God. He deserves our everything. He is the one who told us, be holy as I am holy. Give God your best. That should be elementary to us as people. But it wasn't to Cain. Cain got off, off the track there and he gave God whatever he wanted to give God. And so God doesn't accept Cain's offering and Cain becomes very, very angry. And I don't believe he's angry because he messed up. I think he's angry because he's being treated harshly because of the sacrifice that he gave. And it says, and his face fell. Now that doesn't sound exactly the way it sounds. I know for those of you who experienced the old man of the mountain, that's not what it's telling us about Cain. Cain's face did not fall off his face. But his countenance fell, or his demeanor changed, right? It says he got very angry, and the Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? What is the root of your anger, Cain? He says, if you do well, of course you'll be accepted. If you seek to love the Lord from a right heart and give him what God deserves, of course you will be accepted. But if you do not do well, Here's a warning to you, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary for you, but you must rule over it. He's basically telling Cain, Cain, you're on a very slippery slope. You've done wrong. You've done bad. But now you're in very big danger because you're angry. Not because you messed up. You're angry because of how you were treated. Because... You were made to look bad. And now you're even in a more severe place. And I want you to be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door. God's giving Cain a warning there. Cain, of course, does not listen to it. Because in the very next verse, it says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. They had a dispute. And as they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And we have the first murder ever upon our earth. Cain was so angry, so jealous, so hateful to his brother Abel, he ends up taking his life. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? This is much like a child's response when I ask them, what have they done wrong? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I know what you've done, Cain. You can't hide your deeds from the Lord. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, all because you simply hated your brother to the level of murder. Went from being rejected. In fact, let's look at the train here. He went from anger to jealousy to hatred, to murder. Because that's how the train goes. You get on the anger train, it can take you to jealousy and hatred and eventually murder. And that's the classic tale of Cain and Abel. Great Sunday school lesson. Thanks. A reminder to not murder those around us. I mean, right? That's, 
That's a good reminder. Don't kill people. Is that what John is doing? No, because he's going to use Cain as an object lesson for his, his discussion about love. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. My question when I first read this is, why such a striking contrast? Why go from love your neighbor, love your brother, to don't kill like Cain killed? I mean, that's just nothing I say to my children when I leave for the day. Now remember, love your brothers and sisters, help your mom today, and kids, don't kill anybody. Okay, stay away from the knives, don't kill anybody, I don't want to come home and see, you know, a murder scene. I don't say that to my kids. That would be a weird thing to say because it's such a striking contrast and turn, but yet John brings it up here and puts them next to each other. Love your brother, don't be like Cain. You guys know what a contrast is, right? Now, I told you I used to live in the flatlands, the real flatlands. In fact, my mom and sister just visited this state. Over here we have Iowa. Do you see the difference between Iowa and what we'd say is New Hampshire over here? It's not hard to tell, is it? There's a striking contrast. Does anyone call this place the Shire? It's an interesting little word there. But notice the contrast, mountains and flat. It's such a striking contrast. You go, wow, once you see them one after the other like you guys just did from Iowa to New Hampshire, you can tell these two places are not like each other. That's what he's doing here. He's lining up love and murder. Love and murder. And he's doing that on purpose. He's doing that on purpose so that we understand that there is a very quick road from one to the other. When we're not walking in love, we can very quickly slide down that slope and become like Cain. And he wants us to have that contrast because that contrast is going to be helpful for us. And there it is, put together. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We all agree with that. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And the reason I believe that John is bringing this contrast to our attention today is because there's a small degree of separation from one to the other in God's eyes. Now, not in our eyes. That's dramatic to go from, yeah, I didn't love my brother to I killed my brother. That's, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's lock them up in jail for the rest of their life huge. And yet John says they're next door to each other. Love your brother. Don't kill like Cain did. And that's a very striking contrast, and that's what we call black and white, or sin and righteousness, or good and evil. Now, we like to think there's a third option, right? If you're anything like me, you like to think there's not good and evil only. Sure, we have hate over here, and love over here, and I try to be loving, but I'm not always loving. And when I'm not loving because I'm tired or I'm busy or I neglect someone, it certainly doesn't mean that have jumped all the way over here, does it, John? Is that really what you're saying? I'm probably somewhere in here, in that nice gray area where, yeah, I'm not as loving as I should be, but I haven't killed anybody. I haven't been like Cain, have I, John? And that's what we need to understand today, that our view of hatred and love is not God's view of hatred and love, and we need to get it there. Because it was Jesus Christ himself who said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said to those who knew the law, do not kill, do not murder. He said this to them in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, which everyone agrees with. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, as they absolutely should. 
Jesus said, came to fulfill the law, to explain the law, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will also be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you notice that? Hatred to God is different than hatred to us. Hatred to us is like, I just don't like them. Uh, they bothered me this week. I, they, they did something that I didn't like, and so I'm withholding love from them. And God says it's the same thing in my eyes as murder. And John's saying the same thing. When we don't love our neighbor, we've now entered the territory of Cain. That's really hard to hear, isn't it? That's really severe sounding. But John and God are seeking to help us understand that we shouldn't be on the edges of love. We should be in the deep end of love. Because the edges of love can take us somewhere really, really scary. Because in the eyes and the mind of God, hatred is the same as murder. Now, in our land, you won't get locked up for hating. You will get locked up for murder. At least you should. But in God's judgment, in God's courts, he's going to consider the two synonymous. Hatred and murder. Or we can even say the lack of love and murder. Can you imagine, in God's eyes, being considered similar to Cain? Cain spoke to his brother and killed his brother because of jealousy and hatred. And John's telling us, be like Christ and don't be like Cain. Because when you hate, and you, when, when you withhold love, and when you're angry with, and you speak against your brother, you're acting like Cain who murdered his brother. And that's hard to say because it's, it's something that even for me is hard to hear. Because I don't consider myself to have murdered in the past month, in the past year. I don't consider myself who have taken someone's life. But have I hated? Have I spoke against? Have I withheld love from someone who needed it? I have. And John wants to help us understand that the two are the same. And then he says in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, child of God, Christian. The world hates you. Now, what did we just learn about hatred? Is it hard for you to understand that the world does not like Christians to the point they want them off this earth? It shouldn't be, because it happens all the time. It's called the persecuted church. It may not happen in our neighborhoods, although it could one day very soon. Things are kind of turning that direction but it happens all over the world. People hate Christians so much to the level they actually end up murdering them. It's a slippery slope. Once you get off the train of love and you get on the train of hate, you find yourself quickly in the camps of murder and you didn't expect to get there. And even if you don't physically take someone's life here upon the earth, in God's estimation, if you live in hatred, then you live in the land where Cain lived in. They're the same. And the world and that we live in and the Christians that we are, we are like two opposing magnets. We don't fit in this world, do we? We don't fit. We could try to fit in, but we're not going to fit because we live for something that the world does not live for. We live for Christ-like sacrificial love. At least we should, and the world does not understand that concept. The world is all about number one and chasing down your dreams and getting everything you need out of this life. And Christians are about blessing other people. And that bothers the world because it bothers them about their own conscience, that they're not lacking the same way. 
So they end up hating Christians and wanting Christians off this earth. But they live amongst each other. They don't mix. They're like oil and water, hatred and love. Living in the same town, living in the same household sometimes. Sometimes living in the same heart. Wanting to love, but ending up practicing hatred. And John wants to make sure that we don't have any of this lingering in our hearts because God is not going to accept hatred, is he? God's not going to accept hatred of those whom he loves the most, his people, his children. And we've seen this contrast time and time again in 1 John. He reminded us of this in the second chapter saying, listen, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, it cannot be. We lie and we do not practice the truth because God is not in the darkness. If you want to have God's fellowship, you must walk in the light. You must be about what he is about. And he is about love. If we're not about love, if we haven't gotten on that train yet and we think we're saved, we think we're walking with God, John says, you're wrong, you're not. You're still walking in the darkness. You're still acting like Cain. And that's nothing we want to be considered with. We should not be like Cain who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. That's a striking contrast. And John has to bring it up because he needs us to understand how profound love is and how important it is that we walk in it. Okay? We can't be on the edges of it. We can't do it on occasion when everything is ideal. We need to be walking in Christ-like love as a pattern of our life or we're going to be lumped with Cain instead of Christ. There's no third option. You're either like Christ or you're like Cain. And the scripture actually calls us aliens and strangers. Now, of course, we're not this over here. But to the world, we might as well be because that's how strange Christians look sometimes. When we're walking in holiness and godliness and righteousness and we're sacrificing what we have for the sake of someone else, it looks very bizarre to this world. Yeah, everyone does it on occasion. You know, pay, pay for the, someone in front of you at the store. But when you walk in that and you practice that as a habit of your life, we look like aliens and strangers. And Peter reminds us that's okay because you are an alien and stranger. You don't live here. This is not your home. You're from another land. You're from the kingdom of heaven. So I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Don't follow the pattern of the world. They're not following the right way. Finally, before we close today, let's look at number three, the proof of life. That's how John ends today. Now, if you look at chapter five of 1 John, he kind of gives us the reason he's writing the whole book of 1 John. And this is, this is a passage a lot of us are familiar with. But he gives it to us at the end of the, of the book. And he says this, I write these things, all of what I'm writing, in the entire book of 1 John, to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What does John want? He wants confidence. He wants assurance. He wants you in your soul to have peace and hope that you belong to God. And if judgment day was today, you would be with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And so he writes these things to us so that we will gain that confidence. If we have it, we will know it again. If we don't have it, we will gain it for the first time. So he says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because, now a lot of things could follow that, right? We know that we have passed out of death into life and he's not referring physical, he's referring to spiritual new birth 
how do you know that you're a Christian? Because we claim to. You could say that. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we claim to be Christians. Or we go to church and we know some of the Bible. It gets as base as it possibly can in our culture. You don't have to be a Christian in any profound way. You just have to tell people you're a Christian. What is John going to tell us, though? We know that we have passed out of death into life because what? How do we know? Because we love the brothers. It's that simple. That's how you know that you're a Christian. That's how you know that you've been saved and set free from the chains of sin and death because you love the brothers. And what he's referring to primarily is the church. Of course, we need to love the lost. We need to love our enemies. But we need to primarily love those who God has put us together with eternally. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he says that right there is how you know that you're saved because you love the brothers. In fact, let's flip it on its edge and say this. Whoever does not love, well, he must abide in death. Because love is so fundamental, so element, element, essential, excuse me, to the will of God, to God's character, that if we don't have God's like love, then we don't have life also. And these aren't my words. These are God's words. This is something we all have to wrestle with and search our hearts about. Now, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, if you remember that story, we've, we've spoken about that before, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the grave, right? And you remember the story. He goes to the tomb and he says, pull the stone away from the tomb. And they obey Jesus and he yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. The question is, how do we know Lazarus was alive? Did Jesus make us take, our, take his word for it? I know you don't see anything, but trust me, he's alive in there. He's good. I raised him from the grave. He's good to go. No, how do we know Lazarus was alive? He came forth. He came out of the tomb. He walked out of the tomb, wrapped like a mummy. And they had to say, take that stuff off him. He's not dead anymore. He actually stumbled out of the grave. That's how we know Lazarus was risen from the grave. Well, the same question could be asked of us. How do we know that we've been risen from the spiritual grave? Because we tell people? Is that enough? Because our parents reminded us of some decision we made when we were younger? Because we've always been in the church? No, that's not enough. John says we know because we love the brothers. Because you can do almost every religious activity and still not be alive. You can. I've done it. I lived a huge chunk of my life living that exact lifestyle, doing everything I possibly could to look religious, but still not loving my brothers and still being dead. The proof is not our testimony. The proof is not even our baptism. The proof is that we walk in Christ-like love. And we need that evidence. We need that evidence. We don't need to throw the dice and gamble about our judgment day, right? That is not something anyone should do. I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. I've been in the church long enough. I certainly know a lot of the Bible. I remember a lot of the stories. If they quiz me, I could probably get a passing grade. That's not what it's about on the last day. It's who do you look like? Cain or Christ? If you look like Christ, there's only one conclusion. You must be of Christ because you could not do that without his saving grace. And if you don't look like Christ, there's also one conclusion. You must not have been born of God. And we all need that evidence that we have Christ-like love. So when Paul and others tell us to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, that's what he's saying. Look for the fruit. 
the fruit should look like the fruit of Jesus. It should start to look like Jesus. We should start to think like him, act like him, walk like him, order our lives like him. And most importantly, we should be walking in sacrificial love towards those whom God loves. So test yourselves to see if you're in the faith and do so by looking at the fruit that's coming out of your life. Because I know what it's like to assume that I'm Christian and not have the fruit hanging off my tree. John says, we know that we have passed out to death and to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And I don't want to speak about these things. These things are hard for a pastor to say. I don't want to speak about death. I want to speak about life. I don't want to speak about sin. I want to speak about righteousness. But sometimes I have to go down these roads so that we understand that there's only two paths. There's a right path and there's a wrong path. And there's nothing in between. And John wants us to know today that we don't have to be dead any longer. If we are dead, if we're not seeing the fruit of Christ like love, that can change as soon as today, simply by turning our eyes to the Savior, repenting of our sins, and saying to Jesus, I want to be on your path for the rest of eternity. And our name can be stricken from the records of the dead simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, he firmly plants us on the camp of love, the path of love, and says, follow me this direction for the rest of your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. The last verse he says this, everyone who hates his brother, listen to the language, is a murderer. Not in the eyes of the law of the land, but that's not what matters the most, is it? In the eyes of God, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, you have to be certain that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I'm sure this must have been uncomfortable for John to write as well. That's not something that his readers are going to be pleased to hear. But he has to say it. If you're acting like Cain, you're going to be treated like Cain. If you're going to be act like Cain, then we're going to assume that you have no seed of God in you because it's not possible to continue to hate your brother and be of God at the same time. And murderers are going to find a very different judgment day than those who follow the pattern of Christ-like love. And we have to get off that train if we, if we need to today. And again, remember the words of Jesus. It was his words that he said these things that John is basing his teachings on today. You've heard that it was said to those of old who shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, the Lord of the universe, the Son of God, say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will also be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is John and God trying to get us to do? Love. Not just not hate, not just not speak against. He's hoping we'll turn the boat around and continue to go the other way. And basically, he's telling us there's, there's only one of two options. There's no gray. It's either sin or it's righteousness. There's no gray. There's no third option. You can't be between murder and love. You're either on team love or you're practicing hatred, which in God's estimation is the same as murder. Therefore, no practice of love in our lives no life with God, no new birth. It could not be. If we're not practicing love, we need to search our hearts and make sure that we actually belong to God. If no practice of love, then no salvation. 
It could not be, because we've been saved from sin. If no practice of love, then no relationship with God, because God is love. No practice of love, no hope of eternal life, unless we repent and turn to Jesus, and we begin to walk in Christ-like love for the remainder of our lives. That's what John's telling us today, and he doesn't want us to be like Cain. He doesn't want any of us to be lumped with Cain on the last day. That's why John's writing these things. I'm writing these things to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. Why do I bring up Cain? So you know that if you're like Cain today, you have to stop and turn to Jesus and stop living in hatred and selfishness and cruelty towards your neighbor because that is nothing that God has penned out for us. He wants us to walk in Christ-like love. So those are options. Team hatred or team love. Christ or Cain. And I need everyone to search their heart today, myself included. What are we practicing? Not what do we know. That's important. But we can know without practicing. Is what are we practicing? Are we practicing hatred, the lack of love, selfishness, cruelty? Or do we see patterns, not perfect, but we see patterns of Christ-like sacrificial love in our lives that can only be produced by the seed of God because John told us that last time. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the world's going contrary to how we're going. Now they're calling it love. That's what's interesting about the world. They're following the patterns of hate and selfishness and, and greed and worldliness and they're calling it love. And they're telling Christians that we're the ones that aren't loving that by telling people truth and walking in truth, that we're the ones that don't love, and it's a lie from the devil. He has to make all the teams look flip-flopped. But when we're following the pattern of Christ and we're, we're laying down our needs for those who are in need, and we're speaking the truth in love to our neighbor, we are following the narrow path of Jesus Christ. And that's the path we need to be on. We need to be on, and we need to know we're on. And if we're on the wrong team, and we might be today, because I was for a long time, John wants us to know that the bridge is out. If we continue to follow in hatred and evil and cruelty towards our neighbor, the bridge is out, and that's going to be destruction and ruin for the rest of eternity. And John doesn't want that, and God does not want that. That's why he's speaking these things. This is what I want for my church. I want everyone to know that they're on the path to eternal life, and the only way to know that is by testing our hearts to see if we're walking in love. It'd be easy to stop there and just send you out saying, don't murder, don't hate. Love, But I want, I want to sort of take us a little bit deeper with only the couple minutes we have remaining. Because Paul speaks in an offensive way. We talked about this in the last several weeks, how it's not just defense, just don't hate. Paul's going to say it in another angle in, in Romans chapter 13. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Simply by loving one another, you fulfill the law of God for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Notice it. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law of God. Not only will you be known as a Christian, you will be a law keeping 
Christian in soul, in the eyes of God. And that's what matters. Not that you make lists and say, don't murder, don't steal, don't, don't, don't uh, hurt my neighbor, honor my father and my mother, don't covet, don't break the Sabbath. That's, that's not bad, but there's a better way to do it. Go on the offense for love. Gear your mind towards love. Loving my neighbor, loving my brother over and over, day after day after day for the remainder of my life. Because what happens when we go on the offense for love is we don't even consider murder or hatred or evil or lust or fornication. We're so consumed with loving our neighbor. And once again, we learn the best defense is a good offense. It's good to avoid sin. It's very good to avoid sin, but it's so much better to love our neighbor as ourself. And remember, sitting on the sidelines trying not to sin is not what we've been called to. We've been called to enter the battle with Christ-like love. And the only way to do that is to pick up our sword, pick up our shield, go against the devil, and use love and righteousness against his army. Therefore, if we practice love, we know that we belong to God because God is love. If we practice love, we won't spend our time practicing sin because you can't do both at the same time. You could stop love to sin or you could stop sin to love, but if you're loving as a practice of your life, you're not going to spend your time sinning. If we practice love, we will bring the fight right to Satan's door, and that actually is our goal as Christians, is to take this battle head on against evil and wickedness and cruelty with Christ-like love. And if we practice love, we love those whom God loves. And that's the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment of all time. And in fact, the second commandment serves the first commandment. Isn't that interesting? That to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the best way to do that is how? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you love whom God loves, you love God. When you love my children and my wife, guess who you love? You love me. So we don't have to split up those camps even by saying, did I love God enough? I spent all my time loving my neighbor. No, God says when you love your neighbor, when you love those whom God loves, you love God also. So the two commandments become one commandment. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now I asked you at the beginning, what is the most essential to a bunch of different things? Let me ask you one more. Does anyone know what the most essential ingredient is to baking? There's actually an answer to this. I didn't know. I thought they were all essential. But it... <laughs> Knowledge, very good. The actual, I looked this up, and you could fact check me. I don't know if this, you're right, but they said this, flour. Because it kind of binds everything together, and again, whether that's true or not, I thought it was an interesting illustration. It binds everything together. The milk, the butter, the chocolate, the taste, the sugar. It binds it all together and makes a cake or a muffin or whatever you're trying to make. It holds it all together. Do you notice the interesting parallel? The most essential ingredient in Christianity is something that holds it all together. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What does it hold together? It holds together the, the, the assurance of our salvation. That's not how we're saved. Certainly, we're saved by turning to Jesus. But our assurance of salvation comes from love. And guess how we accomplish the whole law of God? It's the exact same element. Love your neighbor. If you want to know you're saved, love your neighbor. If you want to fulfill the whole law of God, love your neighbor. Do you notice that? Love and love. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. We've noticed this along the path that every, every lesson we give, there's something for God's glory and something for our benefit. I believe love does both. 
Love glorifies God because we live for the very thing he embodies the most. I love seeing my children act like me. Um, there's just something sweet about it, to see my children start to show some of the same attributes and, and try to act like their dad and their mom. It's a very sweet thing to see. When we love one another, we act like our father. And that's a very good thing for our God to see. And he's glorified tremendously by that. But it also benefits us. When we love, we are benefited because we have the proof that we belong to God and we use that same love, that same righteousness to defeat the devil and go on the offense. By one single element, we glorify God and we benefit our souls and we defeat the devil at the same time. That's an amazing truth. Our application today is very, very simple. Get out there and go on the offense for love every day. That sounds tiring, doesn't it? It will be. It will be costly. It will be sacrificial. It will require things of us every single day to do that. But when we do that, we are firmly planted on the path of Jesus Christ. We are setting our eyes to the kingdom of heaven. We are defeating the devil. We are glorifying God. There is no more beneficial thing to spend our day with than loving our neighbor. It is the greatest investment we could ever be a part of. Do you believe that? I had to learn that the hard way. But I'm thankful that God taught me that lesson. And I hope that's at least a reminder to you, if not a very new truth, one that we can start to live in. And John reminds us, the reason we love is because he first loved us. We do simply what he did for us. The same street, we turn around and we start going the same way back to him. I want to see Crossroads Church make that kind of impact in the culture around us. I believe that we are and I believe that we can if we unify in this one task of loving one another. It's so simple and that's why many of us overshoot it. It's too simple. It can't just be love, can it? And that's when God's word says, oh, it is, it is, because that's the greatest weapon I've given you against the devil. It's the greatest way to know that you're of God. It is the essential ingredient in Christianity. Can we bow and pray? Father, I, I am not an expert on this topic, and you know that. This is one I still have much to learn in. I pray that you'd help me, Father, as, as the leader of this church, to understand how beautiful, how powerful, how profound love is for us to practice as your people. Help us, Father, to understand this. If we don't understand this, this is the first time we've wrestled with such things. Help us to look to Jesus, the author of love. Help us remember that he came down to love us first so that we could find forgiveness and salvation and so we could love our neighbor for the rest of our lives, Father. Help Crossroads Church to do this together. We're so thankful that you're here. Guide us in this direction for your glory and for our benefit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and pray with us?